Let us continue to worship God together this morning through the preaching and the hearing of His Word. And if you have a Bible, please take them and turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, page 265, if you are using one of our Pew Bibles. If you're visiting with us today, we are right in the middle of a series through the book of Judges. In these last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Gideon, one of the most prominent judges in this book. And unfortunately, today we come to the end of the life of Gideon, which is kind of like an ancient Greek tragedy. It doesn't end well. So I apologize if you are only here for this kind of discouraging downfall as we consider the bad part, the unfortunate, the sinful downfall of this prominent Judge Gideon. Judges chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, is our passage, and and we're going to focus on all the way through Judges chapter 8, verse 35, but because of its length, Uh, We're going to split it up and just read it section by section as we go along. So we're jumping in right here. This is right after Gideon's 300 men defeat this army of 120,000 Midianites, if you'll remember that story. That's what we looked at last week. So he has just won this great victory, and we're jumping in right here at verse 24. Brethren, this is God's Word. We'll read here just through verse eight, chapter 8, verse 3. Gideon then sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided subsided when he said this. Amen. Bow with me again in prayer. Our Father, we do ask that you would now pour out your spirit of wisdom and truth in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that your immeasurable greatness of your power would be made known to us who believe, that you would do this through your word and your spirit to the glory of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Judges is a book about kingship. Kingship is why the book was written. Every single judge, every single story within the book of Judges comes back also to this one central theme. If you're familiar with the book, 
You know that it opens in chapter 1, verse 1, with who's going to lead us now that Joshua has died? And then the very last verse of this book, the book closes with this haunting refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In this respect, all of the blood of judges, all the gore, the the sex, the, the chaos, everything in this book, the turmoil, is related to the fact that Israel had no king. And not just no king in general, but not the right kind of king. No one to lead them in obedience to their covenant Lord. And thus the fallout. The chaos ensues. There was an epic failure of leadership in the land, and this becomes ever more apparent with each passing judge. But as we consider this, it might be a little difficult for us today to relate to this idea of kingship. We don't live under a monarchy. Well, depending on what your view is of Trump, of course. (laughs) But America was was born out of a resistance to the monarchy. And so it might be kind of odd to us to to be confronted with this question of kingship. What What do we have to do with this chaotic situation in Israel? What does this notion of without a king, chaos reigns, have to do with us? Well, the reality is, whether we realize it or not, The book of Judges is an argument for our need for a king as well. Not a king of our nation, per se, but a king to rule over our own hearts. To rule for the good of our souls. You see, we are all kingdom-oriented. No matter when or where we live in human history. We're kingdom-oriented, all of us, because all of us live in service to some kind of king. In some kind of kingdom. Every day our lives give witness to this. This is because kingship is part of God's creational pattern. Think back of Adam and Eve, when they were created in the garden, they were God's people, as theologian Graham's Goldworthy likes to say, God's people set in God's place, put under God's rule. In creation itself, we see a king, subjects, a realm, and a rule. What this means for us is that we have been created as well as we descending from Adam and Eve, this create the kingdom reality is woven into the created order. And it remains true for us today as well, even though sin and death and the curse have spoiled that original kingdom situation in the garden. All of us live in service to some kind of kingdom. We either live in submission to the Lord, Creator, King, or we've anointed ourselves as King. We live according to what we think is best. We pursue the things in life that we think will bring happiness. We act as if we set all of our own rules, living life on our own terms. 
And so Israel's chaos without a king and their need for a king is but a small picture of each and every one of us as well and our greater spiritual need for a king just like them. And that then brings us to the story of Gideon, which is a very vivid parable of this reality. Here we see Gideon, in in Gideon we see Israel's need for a king and, and this figure who starts so well, but ultimately he proves that he's not the right answer. And then on an individual level as well, we see how Gideon, who is humble and believing in one moment, flies off the handle the next, chases power and glory and money and sex thus representing us in so many ways as well. And all of this then shows us that Gideon could not solve the real issue, the real problem going on in Israel. He couldn't even solve the real issue, the real problem going on in his own heart either. And thus, when we look at it this morning, we need to see our need for a rescue our need for a rescue from a far greater and more powerful enemy than we find in this world, we ought to see our rescue, our need for a rescue, to be rescued from ourselves, our greatest enemy, and the sin that so easily and deeply plagues us. So my hope for us today is that as we open up this passage, we'll see our need for a king and we'll see our sinfulness betrayed in Gideon so that we look to another and place our hope in the one that Gideon ultimately anticipated. So let's walk through this uh, passage. And what I want to do is just consider the four conflicts that Gideon gets himself into here. I want us to focus on what this reveals about him And, of course, the kingdom as a whole. The first incident we come to is what we just read in chapter 7, verse 24, down through chapter 8, verse 3. And here we see Gideon's pride and pursuit of personal glory. His pride and his pursuit of personal glory. I mentioned before that the background of this is that Gideon's 300-man army had just uh, defeated a force of 120,000, just overwhelming odds. He had done so, this, this army is on the run. And, and if you remember, if you were here last week or you are familiar with this story, God was very intentional and emphatic about whittling Gideon's army down to 300. He did that specifically for a reason, for a purpose. He says in chapter 7, verse 2, He did so in order that Israel would not boast over the Lord and say, my own hand has saved me. This whole narrative here is God wanting to make it completely, unequivocally clear that He saved them. Not Israel. They didn't save themselves. And thus, the Lord is to be uh, given the praise and the glory of this victory. But right away, though, unfortunately... We see this fearful, trembling Gideon start to morph into a very different character and begins to chase some of that glory for himself. The first sign that we see of this is 
up in verse 20 of chapter 7. During the battle, Gideon commands his men to shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Which is kind of an odd statement. For Gideon? It's odd given just how far the links that God had gone to to ensure that Israel knew that he was the one fighting the battle and not Gideon. So that gives you a little hint of what's to come. But then immediately after that, we get this odd little interaction with Ephraim here that we just read. In verse 24, Gideon calls on his brothers in Ephraim to help him chase down these fleeing Midianites after the battle. So they come to his aid. Uh, They capture two princes, but then they get a little angry at him. Chapter 8, verse 1, they say to him, What is this you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? Why didn't you let us know when you were going into battle? You see, this is actually a very serious charge. The tribes of Israel had a responsibility toward one another. They should have been notified beforehand of what was going on. And I think in some respects, this is like a, you know, the president uh, declaring war without the approval of Congress, right? You just don't do that in a unified nation. You work together. And so it's somewhat of a legitimate response. But notice how Gideon responds back. After they accuse him fiercely, he says twice here, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? In other words, what he's saying is, isn't the littlest thing that you do greater than the greatest thing that I do? On the surface, sounds like a compliment. Right? An effusive compliment. He's saying, you've done so much more than me. I'm nothing in compared to you. But the reality is, when we look at the context, it's really more of an insult. Why? Well, because Gideon had done much more than them. But more than that, in the very next verse, we see Gideon then exhausting his men in pursuit of two kings. Essentially then, we look at this and we see, okay, He's flattering them to get them off his back. They were a much larger tribe. They could have, you know, he would have had a mess on his hands if he had made them mad. He flatters them to get them off his back, but then immediately he sets out to chase after kings, to one-up them. Oh, you captured princes. Well, I'm going to go get me some kings. I'm going to show you who I really am. Right away, we should see that this is Gideon's pride coming out. This is rivalry with his fellow countrymen. This is his pursuit of glory. And it shows us as well his ultimate motivation. He isn't motivated by obedience to the Lord, which is why Israel was in this situation to begin with, because they broke covenant and God sent them, the Midianites, to punish them. He isn't concerned about obedience. He wants the glory. He wants to one-up his fellow Israelites. And he will flatter them to get them off his back, and he will exhaust his men if that's what it takes to get what he wants. As we reflect on this, isn't it amazing in 
perhaps a bit heartbreaking. That the purpose for which God weakened Gideon to show his glory becomes the very thing that he's then hell-bent on obtaining. The Lord goes to great lengths to make sure that Gideon cannot claim the glory. But when victory is in hand, all he wants is that piece of glory that's been denied him. It's like a starving man has been without food for so long that when he finally has a meal set before him, he eats so much that his body is overwhelmed and it kills him. Brethren, we ought to see here that this is sinfulness, human sinfulness on display. This is what happens when the root of sinfulness isn't dealt with. God may send us circumstances, humbling, weakening, difficult circumstances that temporarily, you know, reform our lives. Or perhaps sometimes our own self-discipline might work for a little while. But if the heart isn't addressed, if the root issue isn't dealt with, then this temporary absence of sin in your life will only serve to fuel your lusts even more. There is no more dangerous position to be in than religious apart from true faith in God. This is what happens with Gideon. This is a sinfulness of sin on display here. God's weakening of him did not reach his heart, and so he breaks out to chase after that glory just as soon as he is able. But this brings us to the second incident here. This isn't done yet. We're getting a small glimpse of his taste of glory. But secondly here, we see his hypocrisy and hate towards those closest to him. We see his hypocrisy and hate towards those closest to him. Here, read with me this section, beginning in chapter 8, verse 4, down through 17. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give us give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zamuna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given me Zeba and Zamuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel. Spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zamuna were in Karkor, if I can say that, Karkor, <laughs> with the army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobab, in Jogbeha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zamuna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zamuna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Hares, and he captured the young men of Succoth and questioned him. 
And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zamuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who were exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Gideon is in pursuit of these two kings. He's trying to one-up the tribe of Ephraim. Exhausted, he comes to the officials at Succoth and he asks for bread along the way. But they're a little cautious, understandably so. Essentially, they say, show us proof that you can take on these armies of 15,000, these much larger armies, with just your 300 men. You know, they're a little hesitant to get involved, understandably. If they aid Gideon, and Gideon then loses the battle, then of course they would also face the wrath of these armies in return. So as we look at this, I think in some sense we should say, okay, this is a lack of faith on their part. They did not know or believe that God had granted Midian into Gideon's hand. But at the same time, it's somewhat legitimate as well. Their their fears were not entirely without merit, given the numerical disadvantages that Gideon faced. But our focus is, how does Gideon respond to this weak faith in his brothers? He's furious. He starts making threats. I'm going to flail your flesh with thorns and briars. I'm going to tear down this tower and teach you a lesson. You know, this is like Liam Nielsen, right? I have a particular set of skills. I'm going to find you and I am going to kill you, right? He's furious and he fumes with these threats of of violence and revenge and does the very same thing to to the men of Penuel as well. Threatens them and then he goes on his way. So obviously, or of course, in the, in, in, in the uh, playing out of these circumstances, we know already what's going to happen. God gives these armies into his hand. He wins another amazing battle with just his 300 soldiers. But that's not really the concern of the author. He wants to come back to what goes on here. He returns to these threats and the events that preceded this battle. And in verse 16, we read, Gideon took thorns of the wilderness and briars, taught him a lesson. This is haunting language. It refers to some sort of torture, and it also implies that there's some sort of great shame involved as well. But more specific to that, think about the notion of teaching them a lesson with thorns and briars. Thorns are symbolic for the curses of the covenant. Remember, after the fall, that is how God, when Adam broke the covenant of works, God cursed the ground with thorns and thistles. So Gideon's use of these thorns is intentional here. Essentially, what he's signaling is, I'm cutting you off covenantally. He's imposing the covenant curses upon them. And 
What's so tragic about this is that he's doing it to fellow Israelites. He's doing to them what he was called to rather do to the Canaanites. This then is the very first incident in the book of Judges of Israel on Israel violence. And it's a turning point in the book as Israel begins to spiral downward and then at the very end they're essentially at war with each other and almost ready to destroy each other. So he turns violent there against the men of Succoth and then the men of Penuel as well. He goes and he breaks down their tower. That was their, their fortress, you know, their place of refuge. Um, their helms deep, as it were, you know. Um, he breaks down their tower and what we read there is that he put some of the men to death simply out of revenge for, for refusing to give him bread. What do we see with Gideon here? He's going rogue. He's flying off the handle. He's a man of blood now. He's not acting in, in, in direction through the direction of God. He's running his own show here, setting his own rules. And he's killing God's own people. What kind of savior is this? What kind of leader is this? But perhaps what's most tragic about this situation is that Succoth and Penuel are simply representations of Gideon himself before the battle. You recall from the story that we looked at last week. When God calls Gideon to go fight Midian, he refuses. He won't do it. Even though God says, I've given them into your hand. Gideon first demands two signs. Remember the the fleece and the dew, right? And then there's another sign as well. that He hears the word of prophecy from a Midianite soldier. Gideon had incredibly weak faith. Gideon himself did not believe. But how did the Lord respond? Did he teach Gideon a lesson? Did he break down his place of refuge and kill some of his family? No, the Lord condescended. The Lord came to him in mercy. The Lord was long-suffering and patient. But in the face of this same exact hesitant, weak faith in others, Gideon now just flies into a rage. He can't handle it. Isn't it sad how quickly we often crucify others for the very same sins that we ourselves struggle with? There's a lot of truth to the old adage that it takes one to know one. And unfortunately, most of the time when we know one because we are one, we have very little patience with them. This is the natural hypocrisy of the human heart. The sinfulness of the human heart. We are so quick to recognize sins in others and so slow to recognize them in ourselves. Furthermore, isn't it also tragic 
But the ones we ought to love the most are often some of the greatest recipients of our sin and anger. These aren't the Canaanite enemies. These are Gideon's own people, the people of God. In the same way, how often do we sometimes treat our family members in ways that we would never treat our friends? How many of us often treat fellow Christians whom we differ with in ways that we would never treat unbelievers? That's what sin does. That's what it results in when it's unhindered. It always turns us into hypocrites. It always blinds us to our own struggles. It always leads to irrational behavior, even against those who we ought to love the very most. Gideon is becoming unhinged as he's hell-bent on being his own king. This brings us to a third incident here in verse 18 through 21. Gideon is ultimately motivated by personal revenge. He's ultimately motivated by personal revenge as opposed to obedience. Read with me verse 18 through 21. Then he said to Ziba and Zamuna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill, kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zamuna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zamuna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Important thing to notice about this incident, this conflict, is that the author wants, again, to make it clear that Gideon is not acting out of obedience to the Lord. Remember, the Lord had commanded Israel to devote the Canaanites to destruction. Total war. No mercy. You slay them. All of them. But notice what Gideon says to these two Canaanite kings. I wouldn't have killed you if you hadn't killed my brothers. He even swears an oath. As the Lord lives. It should strike us after this incident with Penuel because it shows that Gideon treats them better than he did his own countrymen. The Savior that God raised up to deliver Israel is harsher with these Israelite cities than he is with these sworn enemies of God. He wouldn't have killed them had, he not hurt, had they not hurt him personally by killing his brothers. What kind of leader is this? Now, of course, he does end up killing them. But his motivation, what is his motivation? Personal revenge, not obedience. Personal revenge. He wants to enact revenge for what they've done. It's not simply obeying the Lord. And, you know, this comes out even further with this incident with his son. Instead of killing them himself, himself, he asked his son to do it. 
This isn't a man who's zealous to obey the Lord. This isn't a man who's bent on obeying the Lord at all costs. Obedience and killing these kings is really kind of unimportant to him. He'll let somebody else do it. As we'll consider in a moment, though, this action of asking his firstborn son to do it is kind of signaling that his firstborn is the successor, his successor. You know, he's kind of uh, setting up a dynasty here, as a king would do. Same thing goes with this seizing of the crescent ornaments here. This is the actions of a king. He's beginning to seize power. And yet, comically, at least the author wants us to see comically, his son is afraid and weak and won't do it. So here is this Gideon who's seizing power, right, to become king, and he can't even get his own son to obey him. That's the picture we should see. Then the two kings themselves respond and say, you know what, act like a man, just do it yourself. Even in their death, they're exercising control over him. This is the irony. This is the the tragedy. You know, just like Gideon wouldn't go into battle earlier uh, in chapter 7 until he heard a Midianite prophesy their own destruction. In the very same way, Gideon wouldn't even obey God until the Midianites themselves command him to do so. Is this the kind of leader that Israel needs? Maybe to put it more specifically, let me ask you this. Is doing the right thing out of the wrong motives truly and really obedience to the Lord? No. No. Eventually, when obedience isn't so convenient, these wrong motives are going to grasp for what we really long for. And that's part of what's so deceptive about ruling our own lives and being our own king. We're happy to fall in line when obedience is convenient and we get what we want. But although we fool ourselves with this outward obedience, truly and really more sinister voices control us. And we don't even realize it. And eventually, those sinister voices and dwelling sin come out in full force. See, Gideon's problem hasn't been dealt with, and now the wheels are starting to fall off. Fourth and finally then, this last incident. Israel's great Savior becomes the cause of great stumbling. Israel's great Savior becomes a cause of great stumbling. Look with me, verses 22 through 35, the end of the chapter. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. 
for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in the in, threw in it the earrings of his spoil, and the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Remember, Jerubbaal is Gideon. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abezerites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereath their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. If it wasn't obvious already, Gideon is acting like a king. And so Israel comes to him and they essentially request to make official what was already true in essence. But Gideon's too pious for that. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord will rule over you. He says the right thing. He's got his doctrine all lined up, doesn't he? He knows the right thing to say at just the right moment. But again, this is nothing more than hypocrisy. More false humility, more uh, uh, sneaky words, just like he did with Ephraim above. We can see this because first, they say to him, you have delivered us. And yet he fails once again to set the record straight and say, no, it was the Lord. He's going to let them run with that. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Then he says, no, I'm not going to be king. But oh, by the way, give me all your gold. Yeah, will you do that for me? Almost 50 pounds worth. This is what kings do. They gather gold. This is their their royal share. And then he makes an ephod. Ephod is normally some sort of garment. Here, some sort of garment made with gold. It was a garment the priests wore. In some sense, it has something to do with worship. There's some sort of innovation of worship here. Gideon is either signaling that he wants to be a priest too as some people think, or maybe more specifically, he's setting up this ephod in his own city, his own hometown right here as the kind of cult center, which is what kings do. The point is, he's acting like the guy, the man, the one who's in charge. Even though he said, no, no, I'm not going to be king. Don't worry about that. And what does this result in? All Israel whored after it there, verse 27. It became a snare to Gideon and his family. This is just a replaying of the golden calf incident. It led Israel straight into idolatry. 
Then we read in verse 29 that he went and lived in his own house. This is kind of the language reminiscent of a king sitting down in his own castle, or palace, I should say. Then we're told he had many wives and 70 sons. Again, these are the actions of a king. This is not something a normal you know, peasant would do. This is what kings do, to have lots of offspring, lots of wives, lots of concubines. One of these sons, he even names Abimelech, which literally means, my father is king. That's what he named his son. We'll see next week that this has fallout as well in the life of Abimelech and what that ends up leading, uh, causing in the land of Israel. But Gideon is setting up a dynasty here. And then even finally in verse 22, it speaks of him being buried with his fathers, which is the same language that's used of, of kings in Israelite history. What does all this lead to? What is the result? What, what is the ramifications of Gideon's seizing of power? Verse 33. The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals. They made Baal bereath their God. They forgot the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. The Savior of God's people ultimately becomes a stumbling block to them. And after he dies, they make Baal bereath their God. This is key language. Bereath is the Hebrew word for covenant. Yahweh is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping Lord. But now Baal supplants that role. It's like an antichrist. A total perversion to the contrast of who Yahweh is ought to have been in their midst. And the fallout is that multi-generational failure comes after Gideon among the people of Israel. The great Savior of Israel ultimately becomes the means of great stumbling. Well, brethren, as we draw all this to a conclusion, what should we make of this? What does this picture of Gideon's heart and life reveal to us? Well, it shows us that for all of his exploits, even being counted as a man of great faith in Hebrews chapter 11, a saint, one whom we will see in eternity in the presence of the Lord, for all of his great exploits, He could not solve the real issue in Israel. He could not heal the inherent idolatry and sinfulness of the human heart. He could not, though he could fix the outward circumstances, he could go no deeper than that. He couldn't even fix his own heart. What this points us to is Israel's need not to be delivered from their foreign oppressors. That's not their real problem. The real enemy was not Midian or the Gentiles. The real enemy was inside of them. The real enemy was their own sinful hearts. 
Gideon then is a microcosm of the nation as a whole. He needed rescue too. He needed deliverance from himself. He needed his real issues dealt with. The outward fixings did nothing. And brethren, the same is true for you and me and all of us as well. All the problems of our life are not outward. They're not our circumstances. They're not our difficulties, our sufferings, our ups and downs. We don't need a change of scenery. We don't need some, some self-help steps for, for, for more obedient living. We don't need more disciplined practices in our personal devotion. Ultimately, we need continual rescue from ourselves from our greatest enemy that is within us. And the tragic reality of this is we cannot do it on our own. Because of our sinfulness, we need somebody from the outside to come and rescue us. We need someone who's greater than us. We need someone who's more powerful than us. We need someone who does not have the same sinfulness as us. All of this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and the great salvation that He accomplished as that ultimate leader, that ultimate king, that ultimate deliverer from Israel, of Israel. And that's why I titled the message today, A Tale of Two Kings. The faux kingship of Gideon serves in this strange typological way to point us to the perfect kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He is the King that we need. We need a King, not one who's motivated by personal selfish ambition. Not one who, who is characterized by cruelty to his own. Not one who leads people into idolatry. And that's what we see in Christ. He served His people. He didn't use them. He gave up His power, emptied Himself, rather than grasping for more, counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't torture His people with thorns. He wore the crown of thorns Himself and He bore that covenant curse on His head for the sins of His people. He didn't fashion His own robe, His own ephod. He was stripped naked at the cross. He didn't leave us in our idolatry or lead us to idolatry, but by becoming sin for us, we now, forgiven and cleansed and free, can worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ is the true King. Jesus Christ is the one who not only started well, but finished well. He is the one who endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And now His message to us is... It is finished. It is finished. Everlasting righteousness has been ushered in. The fallout from this is that the Gospel goes forth multi-generationally as the children of God here are born by the Spirit. Confess Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord and are welcomed and adopted into the family of God the people of God, 
and are given the glorious inheritance of that everlasting kingdom that will never fade away. What will it be for you? That's the question before you today. It's before us all. Who is your king? Who will you follow? Where is your kingdom? May we all look to Jesus Christ. The hope that we have in the gospel. The visible manifestation of that in the church. And may we find strength and grace in time of need as He leads us to our eternal home. May God give us grace to do that even today. Let's pray.